Hello, boys and girls. This is Steve Tripp coming to you live from the Top Strength Project, and this is the Top Strength Cast, a grit original. I am here to denounce the limitless bullshit surrounding the industry by sharing my own personal experiences and insights in an attempt to offer a more direct, sensible, and authentic approach to becoming the best version of ourselves. Other experts at the top of their fields will be joining me to cover training for and competing in strength sports along with all things muscle. It is my goal to offer as much value through this platform as possible because I believe that there is no cruise control. There is no maintaining. You're either learning, growing, and getting better, or you're going backwards. So wake up, be present, be relentless, and let's go. All right. Hello, boys and girls. We're back. I am Stripcam, your host, and we are live in the Top Strength Cast studio right here at the Top Strength Project. And I am joined by a very special guest, um, a good good friend of mine from a long time. I've known Nick now for probably seven years, maybe more, probably eight. Yeah. Um, he's my PT. He's my go-to PT. We work a, a ton together. And... Um, What's special about Nick is, is he and I kind of share a lot of the same perspectives in regards to training, rehabilitation, and also just specialists as a whole. So I'm really excited to have him on. Thanks a lot for coming, Nick. I appreciate your time. Yeah, much appreciated for having me on your platform, Steve. It's been awesome to uh, see you grow your business and your platform. And uh, Right alongside great- yours, Nick. Super grateful to be here, man. So let's get started just with your background a bit. You know, right. I'm sure you were an athlete growing up. You grew up in the area and how you kind of got into training. Um you know, uh, competing in sports and then your educational background and how you started your own business. So let's just, let's just take it from the top. Yeah, for sure, man. So yeah, I grew up playing field sports, football, baseball, basketball, all of it. Um, got in the gym early, had an uncle who was a strength coach. Um, where did you, um, where'd you grow up? Bristol, Rhode Island, um, played youth sports, um, got in the gym early. Like I said, uh, had an uncle who was a, uh, strength coach, um, for, um, various, um, professional football and baseball teams. Um, really? Locally? Uh, no, actually, uh, he's down. He was with the Washington Redskins, um, various boxers, um, so kind of all over the, the strength and conditioning circuit. So got me into it early, got some good good habits early, really just crushed. What's early? How old are you when you started uh, weight Probably training? like 12, 13. Yeah, same. Um, I was around the same age, around 13 years old when I got started. Yeah, just like the basics, man, really. Did just, it uh, didn't stunt your growth? <laughs> no, it did not stunt my growth, I don't think. Um But yeah, really just like get swole type work, hypertrophy, which I think is kind of a a really good base to set time under tension. He always preached from an early from an early um, from an early age. So I feel like I I developed um, just some good habits early on. Definitely uh, built on that as I got older. Let's touch on that a bit, because, um, you know, as as someone, you know, I'm 35 now. How old are you? I'm 32. So looking back, you know, it was the same for me too when I first started training in, in my young teens, and it was the same. It, it was it was pump work. I, I essentially wanted to wanted to kind of look and, and feel better. But but now after you know practicing a bit and kind of understanding a bit more about how we progress as athletes, especially at an adolescent age, um, if I were to go back and start again, or if I were to make recommendations for young kids, would you go the high approach for out in the onset? I, I would think more like skill development, strength development, movement patterns, calisthenics, even Olympic lifting and, and, and focusing more on the coordinative efforts of strength in the onset when we, as men, as young teens, because my, my thought process, I'm interested to hear yours on this. Not that it's a waste of time to do hypertrophy work because of, of the sensory, the proprioception, and getting a feel for moving weight, but you, we just don't really have the hormonal um, 
disposition at a younger age, you know, until our late teens to really um, benefit from, um, you know, hypertrophy training. So in the onset, if I, you know, if, if you were a client of mine or you were a friend with a son or a daughter that was in the early teens, I would be more focused upon kind of coordinated efforts, maybe Olympic lifting, strength training, specific calisthenics with some hypertrophy work, but that wouldn't be the primary driver at a young age. Would you, would you agree with that approach? Yeah, absolutely. And I would press it, preface um, what I just said by saying I kind of grew up, you know, playing outside, riding my bike around, just honestly dicking around outside, building a foundation of free play. Yep. So I think that any way you can stimulate free play in a, in a developing person, I think really sets the the movement skills and the foundations to, to do something more specific like hypertrophy type work. Um, I think for teens, um, hypertrophy work makes sense to me, uh, especially if it's focused on like time under tension, you're going to learn skills from uh, basically develop skills with just longer or slower reps. I think that's pretty helpful. But um, certainly if that's not built on a foundation of just a well-rounded human being in general, um, I think it's kind of probably falls short of what we're after. Yeah, it's really inter interesting. I, I had Stan on a few weeks ago. And, you know, growing up and even recently, you hear a lot about, oh, you know, young young kids, you know, as, as they're growing and, and they're still, you know, uh, essentially growing that that strength training can be can be counterproductive and not the best move but that's starting to shift where they say it's actually essential and completely necessary to get kids strength training get them under a bar at a young age and he's doing a a great program out at sin city barbell in vegas where he's working with you know uh two or three dozen kids at a time and they're squatting benching deadlifting or variations of you know floor presses sure. kettlebell deadlifts trap bar deadlifts and different um squat variations and he's having a great time with it and the kids love it but i think What's very important that you said is, is free play, making it enjoyable, making it fun. Um, not everybody is like us and, you know, it's so much fun to squat as much weight as possible. You know, we enjoy that, but but making it fun for kids. And he, he, seem, he seems to claim that all the kids he's doing are, are absolutely loving it. And it's great to see because it never made sense to me to... to to, to not encourage young kids to get into strength training. And, um, you know, years ago they said that it, it was counterproductive, but now they're, they're starting to understand that it's actually essential, um, not only for, you know, d development in the patterns, but also resiliency. You know, at the end of the day, especially with your background as, as a physical therapist, I think everybody's primary driver in training, be it for strength, hypertrophy, whatever it may be, is to bulletproof your system, to to make you more resilient so that when you're outside of the gym doing everyday tasks, you know, whether 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 it's labor, whether things around the house, you're in a you're you're so much less likely to get hurt when you um when, when you have a background and a baseline of strength training as well as being able to to do more, you know, and also recovery, you know, be able to recover and come back from certain setbacks and injuries. So it's really nice to see that that's kind of starting to come to the forefront and being, um, you know, being communicated as essential for young kids. So it's nice to see. Yeah, for sure. And I also think too, like it can easily be taken to an extreme, which I think is obviously probably not, not beneficial before a certain age, but really just building foundational movement patterns um, and then progressively adding load to those things. Yeah. Um, you know, in the early teens, I think is, is essential for just kind of keeping those patterns throughout your life. Yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth in the sense that at a young age, you know, avoid specialization. For sure. Just get involved in fucking everything. No doubt. You know, and for one, because you don't really have necessarily the the ability to specialize at a young age. And I think it's most important to get involved in everything. If I could go back rather than just playing football and just doing track 
and uh, and lifting weights, I would have been involved in more sports. I would have done basketball, lacrosse, um, maybe even cross country. Just getting involved in as much things as as possible at a young age, I think is, is definitely the way to go. Um, kind of kind of spreading yourself thin across all different practices. For one, because you may find that you really enjoy something that you may otherwise not have until trying it. But again, the, the ability to specialize isn't going to be as present at a younger age until you get into your late teens and early 20s. No, I totally agree. And I, and I see that, actually. With the competition the way it is now, you almost need to specialize early if you want to compete at the highest levels. Um, and I think from a, from a durability standpoint, you really leave a lot on the table by not like you said, spreading yourself out a little bit. I see it a lot with, I work with a lot of runners at this point and they specialize super early. They literally just run in a straight line all the time. And it's like, you need to probably be involved. If you were involved in some type of field sport, you're getting different stress stimulus on your body and you're not basically, um, your engine just gets bigger um, when that's the case. So I think at some point, specialization is going to take you to kind of the the end of your genetic limit, so to speak. But I think um, the bigger base you can build before you specialize, the the more robust of a human being you're going to be in general. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great point. So to take us on the next step, so you started strength training at a young age. Yep. um, Hypertrophy based, a lot of time under tension, you know, with the guidance of your uncle, you said it was? Yep, yep. And then then what was the next step? What, What came next? Next step was basically I trained hard through high school, loved it, um, you know, just kind of jackass lifting at the end of the day, like really not well thought out. I kind of, my uncle kind of instilled a lot of good, uh, a lot of good habits, but then, you know, I was in the gym just like everybody else, banging weights around, lifting heavy, enjoying the shit out of it. Um, and then it came, uh, basically my high school sports career ended, um, came down to go to college and I was kind of like, all right, do I want to go play? I wasn't good enough to play anywhere D1 or anything crazy like that. I probably could have played somewhere D3, didn't make a ton of sense for me to do. Um, so I was like, all right, where do I want to go to school? Kind of, um, Stumbled my way into a physical therapy program at Northeastern University, Um, kind of applied there, not in the physical therapy program, applied there as a health science major, Um, wasn't sure what I wanted to do exactly, thought about medical school, uh, was just kind of like ignorantly thinking about that, honestly, didn't really know what it would entail. And then when I got there, I was like, all right, Northeastern's a five-year program, you know, what am I going to be doing with this degree that I get? Um, when I'm done. And it was a pretty general degree. A lot of the people that were in the health science program would go on to some type of graduate school after that medical school being an option. So I was like, you know what, that doesn't sound great. I'd rather have a more clear cut path. I applied to their six year doctorate of physical therapy program. Um, my second year there ended up getting in. Um, so yeah, I was on track to become a physical therapist. I met a lot of great people there. Um, got my personal training certificate while I was there. I was personal training clients, um, at the school gym. So that kind of got me started, um, you know, applying my skills, um, sooner, which honestly, I, for anybody who's a physical therapist listening to this, um, get your, if you do not, if you're not personal training, uh, especially people who want to become a physical therapist, go get a job in a gym as a personal trainer, or even as like a bartender or in some type of, um, basically socially interactive environment. I think if you can foster those communication skills, it's the same shit you're going to be doing um, as a healthcare provider, physical therapist. So I feel like um, getting exposure to just talking to people, I was able to do that early, which I think set me up um, to, you know, just kind of follow my own path as a physical therapist. But anyway, long story short, um, got through physical therapy school there, um, got my first job uh, as a physical therapist with a, with a big box physical therapy clinic. Um, 
in the Providence area. Um, knew immediately that I wasn't going to be working there for the rest of my life and was like, all right, what's my plan? Um, you know, I, I knew the field of physical therapy could be awesome, but to be honest, um, your, your traditional big box physical therapy kind of sucks. Um, and, and it's kind of sucks to say that, but I, I think it's true. Um, the, the whole outlook on the field, I think, has gotten a lot better um, in the last five to 10 years. So basically, I spent about five years there, learned a ton, and then started um, Academy Physical Therapy, which is my um, physical therapy business in 2018. Um, and I've been there ever since. Um, and then I started Strength IQ kind of along the way, just as an idea uh, that I had. It, it was first started as an idea. Um, and really, uh, it's starting to come to fruition now. We have, uh, we're building a website out. Um, and really, it's going to be an educational platform. Um, basically, half education, half execution is kind of what we're going after. So um, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm at now. And um, looking forward to uh, what's to come with it. So we originally crossed paths when I was working at Synergy. I, yes. was, I, was, tra- I was training there and I was the quote unquote director of, phys- of, of personal training, yeah. which, you know, was, was a what was a great position um, to be offered. But, you know, I never got compensated for it. But that's how we crossed paths. You were in, in, in the thick of DPT school and you were just kind of looking for something to keep you busy, keep you in the field. Um, definitely a great point about getting people in PT school working um, as a personal trainer, because I think that is what makes you special and separates you from your traditional physical therapist is your understanding of the synergistic relationship and importance between physical therapy and strength conditioning and, and, and strength training. Um, we, and, and that's how we originally crossed paths. You know, I hired you at, at Synergy. You were there for a bit. Then you finished DPT school. You, you started working in, in the clinic and then I broke my arm. And then you reached out and said, hey, man, I'll take care of your rehab. And we connected at that big box facility. And we just kind of started talking. And, and I really, um, I felt like we really shared kind of a lot of the same perspectives on not to, not, not to be too, um, not to make this blanket statement about all PTs, but generally speaking, it seems like a lot of them hide behind their credentials and, and their job, what, what they see their job is to get people who are injured to be comfortable and to be able to, you know, um, I think the specific example you use is like someone hurts their shoulder and once they get to a point where they can, you know, put a cup in a cupboard overhead and close the door without pain, they're good to go. Your job's done. But you definitely are just more thorough and, and you understand as an athlete, as someone that trains, that, that's done a lot of strength training, you, you understand that, that, you know, and you'd rather work with a more kind of athletic adept population where we want to get back to be you know, where we were before the injury or, or ideally better. Right. And that's kind of, that's kind of been your approach. And, um, and, 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 and we've been working alongside each other, you know, for, from the very beginning. Yeah, man. I think that uh, our healthcare system is kind of set up around normative values. So we kind of basically, we're going to judge success based on your ability to get back to normative values, which a lot of the times is, is not really that great. Like you mentioned, I think normative values for shoulder uh, health would be, can you put basically something in the cupboard, you kind of check that box, you know, you're good to go, so to speak. And I think, you know, especially as the strength and conditioning field has progressed, I think the consumer is starting to get a lot more uh, aware that there are, there's actually a lot we can do uh, beyond that. So if you kind of just set the bar higher, um, I think the field of strength and conditioning has really done a good job of kind of pushing the envelope forward. And, and I think I try to blend, you know, my education as a, as a, as a physical therapist, uh, with the concepts of, uh, of strength and conditioning. And then I really think you just have a, a continuum of, 
of care that we all operate on. Um, and you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's kind of gray when you kind of shift out of the rehab realm into the performance realm. But I think that, um, you know, there's not really all that I look at it as if you're providing a good personal training service, you have good understanding of the full spectrum of, of rehab to performance. And maybe you can kind of go towards that rehab end of the spectrum. Um, and I feel like as a physical therapist, I have a, a more robust understanding of the rehab perform uh, end of things. And then like when they get to the performance end, that's when I would hand them off to to a strength and conditioning coach or, or a personal trainer. So I think but that you tend to continue working along with a lot of the people you work with I, in, in the strength conditioning realm as well. You continue to see them if, if they're willing to keep coming. I do. And honestly, like, cause I've, I've, come, I've come in for sessions with you and, right. and I see, I mean, these guys are, they're, you know, they're still rehabbing, but they're, they're no longer injured. You, you, you have people in there doing, doing some work, you know, you're, you're doing definitely doing some, some personal training and strength training long after you get them recovered and, and healthy again. For sure. And, and I do that and I enjoy doing that. I view myself as a strength coach, honestly, during those during those times. So I do think that I, I tend to or I can step um, get into the performance realm. But to be honest, in the setting that I'm in right now, sometimes I I really wish I could hand some of those people off to get them out of the rehab setting, because a lot of the times it's like, dude, you should be training like my workouts when I'm training don't look like a don't look like the workouts that I do in my, my rehab office. So I think that there's a, you know, I kind of, we focus on um, kind of the moniker we have in the rehab clinic. It's like learn, adapt, evolve. So we end up focusing on the front end of that, which is like the learning portion. Um, and then the adaptations will come as, you know, we're able to learn and change the strategy and build new tissues and new, and, and, and just new competencies. But then the evolution or the evolve portion of that is going to come with intensity. So in the rehab setting, intensity is kind of one of those things that we kind of sacrifice on the front end so that we can decrease threat, improve feedback, and, and just get your nervous system in a state where you can actually learn something new. And then I think as you get more competent, um, you ramp that stress stimulus back up and your ability to utilize these new strategies ultimately gives you a higher ceiling. Yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes I, I'm kind of like, you know what, this setting, you need the intensity end of things, move away from this. And, and that's more of like your chronic pain um, person. So it's like somebody who is biomechanically looks good. Um, they're checking a lot of boxes. Things are going well. And then it's kind of like there, there's many factors for why somebody's in pain, not just the biomechanical reason. So um, I do think sometimes the uh, the intensity is what people are missing. And they and that that's ultimately what builds robustness. So I think um, you know just basically having a good working relationship and a good network. I've been very grateful to work uh, with you for that reason because I feel like we can you know get people to the right place to succeed. Yeah, and, and not only not only has it been you know myself you know because because I I have a decent understanding of when someone's in pain you know what to do. I have an idea really just based upon my own anecdotal experience. Like, oh, this hurts. And I'm like, yeah, I know what that's like. And right. I can kind of take them through things that I've done. But it's been great to be able to refer you, not only my clients and members, but also my staff. That was a point that I meant to make earlier, but I kind of jumped over it, is when you spoke about as someone in PT school or practicing PT, operating as a personal trainer, I think it's so important and so advantageous as a personal trainer to get hooked up and linked up with a few physical therapists and work with them in the physical therapy setting. Because in all honesty, when it comes to personal training, be it general pop or athletes, more often than not, the majority of what we're doing is going to be corrective exercise, um, breaking bad habits, managing pain tolerance, um, and 
you know, manipulating things like intensity and volume so that you can create a learning environment so these people can get out of pain and move in different patterns, offering uh, movement variability and increasing their ceiling. So, you know, it's not just, you know, when you think about personal trainers and you think we're working with athletes and things like that, but the general population people, more often than not, it's corrective. And it's, it, it, would, it would serve any individual who wants to get in the personal training realm to link up with specialists like that and, 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 and shadow them and work with them so that they can get a better understanding and have a more, you know, m- more tools in their tool belt, for lack of a better word. All right. Um, yeah, no, so I think corrective exercise is kind of a term that's kind of been around. I like to think of the best corrective exercise is exercising correctly. So it's like, you know, if you can just teach somebody the basics of that's how to... That's a t-shirt. <laughs> I that's didn't make that t-shirt. up. I don't know where I got that from, but I, I, I wish I could give kudos to the person who got that from. But yeah, corrective exercise, exercise correctly. Literally just do the basics well. And then I think it's like, you know, you can really solve a lot of problems by just not squatting like shit or not deadlifting like shit. And it's really like, we're all working on that, you know? So it's not like this nebulous... Uh, you know, I got the secret sauce of, of these are the, the secret exercises nobody knows about. It's, I'm basically doing the same shit as everybody else, but it's like, just really be uh, just adamant. I know you are, but adamant about doing the basics really well. And there's not any secret, really. It's like, you know, this is the, the field of health and fitness, strength and conditioning. It, it's one of the fields where it's like, you literally get in what you put in. So if you just, you know, the, the same is not said for many other things, like shit can happen. But if you're dedicated and you fill the big buckets of what you need to do, um, you're probably going to get results and you're probably going to get a lot of them. Um, so I always find solace in that. And, and it really kind of keeps me motivated to um, just really be uh, genuine about recommending, you know, all of, all of, all of, uh, I don't want to say it, basically just being very confident about this is going to be a positive experience if you do X, Y, and Z. And it's simple in that regard. Yeah. And I think it's also important to get people kind of out in the open doing big lifts and compound lifts because, you know, traditionally in the physical therapy setting, it's, it's very isolated, you know, you, internal, external rotation, you know, stretching, um, you know, different modalities. And I think what ends up happening is that you kind of enable individuals to be scared of their bodies. You know, after an injury, it, it can be very traumatic for people. And then all of a sudden they think that they're broken. And that's not the right way to look at it. Like you're fine. You have something going on, but we got to get you moving again. We got to get you confident again. And I, I, I find that if you're always keeping people constrained and, and, and being very isolating and not, you know, coming full circle that you almost enable them to, you know, adopt and maintain that idea that they're hurt, that they're broken. When the fact is, is that, you know, there, there is, there is a means, there is a means to get you back on your feet and get you moving again comfortably and confidently and have you be in a better position than ever. You know, when you, when you look at the extremes, like athletes, you know, you see a, a football player or, um, you know, someone in a high contact spot, they have a catastrophic injury, they blow their knee out, they, they have a back injury, whatever it may be. And more often than not, they, they come back stronger. And I think, that kind of lends itself to the um, the silver lining of being injured. You know, as athletes, we move and we develop and we can develop bad habits. But when you're injured and you're forced to start over again, you relearn patterns and you solidify them and you have a better foundational approach and understanding. And you're then able to take things, you know, far and past to where you ever were before. 
Yeah, no, 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 no doubt. I like to think, you know, and, and it's hard for people to be optimistic when they come into my office and they're injured. But a lot of times I'm like, all right, we're going to have the opportunity to work on a lot of things that I think are not only going to get you better, but also um, increase your ceiling for performance moving forward. A lot of the stuff that's going to keep you durable and not in pain is also going to be the stuff that's going to get you performing well. So I always pitch it like that, where it's like, this is not a setback. This is just going to be a, a rerouting of focus for a period of time. And then as we start to make that progress, I think it's very apparent to people that, you know, they now have a much more robust understanding of how they can apply stress to their bodies in ways that's going to ultimately um, lead them to, to be better than they were prior to injury. Are you able to offer kind of a general explanation as to kind of specific things you look for when it's time to progress someone to the next level. So someone comes in with some type of injury and they're very limited, you know, um, there's obviously, you know, the baseline approach of getting, of addressing it specifically in an isolated pattern and developing an understanding. What, what kind of things are you looking for to progress them to the next level, be it, you know, a compound lift or, or, or kind of getting them, you know, out of their seat and, and, and moving forward? Yeah, sure. It's so probably get, a tough question because context obviously matters, but I assume there's specific things you kind of look for when you start essentially adding intensity, like you said before. Yeah, definitely. I think that, uh, you know, the, the standard approach would be, and I'll give the example of a squat. If you have knee pain in your squat, we're probably going to look at how your knee joint moves passively. We're probably going to want to set a standard. Uh, we want your knee to be able to straighten and bend um, adequate amounts for us to then continue to put load through that. Um, so it'll start with range of motion, like what, jo what joint range of motion is necessary for the activity that you're doing? Um, and then do you possess that? And if the answer is no, then we'll have strategies to improve your, your ability to, to move through that particular joint. Once you have passive and active range of motion, basically passive range of motion is I can bend your knee. Yeah, where so we for the listeners, if, if, if someone is evaluating a knee, passive would be, for example, you're on the table Correct. and someone is externally moving your limb and you're relaxed. That'd yeah. be passive. So how yeah. far can your knee joint, for example, bend with Nick doing it manually? Right. When then active would be the next step where how far can you move it by contracting your own muscles? Right. So th those are two things. So you, and, and a lot of the time, there's a bit of a discrepancy between active range and passive range. Correct. Yeah, there's always going to be more, slightly more passive than active. We want that uh, to be as close as it possibly can. And there's thresholds. Um, but yeah, so that would be kind of check in the box number one. We need that before we start. Act. If you have, you know, 20 degrees missing of knee flexion or basically your ability to bend your knee, I'm not going to have you try to do an ass to grass squat because we know the joint's not going to handle that well. So um, once we clear range of motion, passive and active, then we'll start progressive loading strategies. So basically when we're, when we're loading up a squat, we probably um, don't want to start with a squat if somebody's having knee pain. We'll probably start in some other position that's um, less uh, mechanical load through the knee joint. So we'll usually minimize gravity. Um, we'll get you kind of on the ground. And basically, we want to we think of the squat as a skill. So um, we can start to learn the parts of the skill. So can you control your pelvis in space? That's a big part of you being able to squat well. Um, we could basically do some floor-based sensory motor competency drills, which are basically just like, can you find and feel the areas of your body that are going to control your pelvis 
in a gravity minimized position. So that's going to, um, and Pat Davidson talks about, um, the sensory part of that is like, do you feel this in your hamstrings or glutes? And they would say, yes, or you basically, you would be asking the patient that, um, and, and looking for their feedback. Where do you feel this? We want it to be in the right spot. And then it's got to pass our eye test of, you know, you, it, it can't look like shit pretty much. So it, it basically there's, depending on what the drill is, we'll have some, some, some motor competencies that we want it to look like or mimic. So um, once the sensory motor competencies are there, then that's usually my uh, cue that we can start to add um, stress. So we could add stress by um, increasing the the um, gravity um, or the demands of gravity, basically by having somebody stand up. We could obviously add load to that pattern. Um, so it's never just kind of like, oh, right, let's wing it and see the squat. And uh, you know, there, there may be some time of that, depending if, if somebody's not in a ton of pain, but more often than not, if somebody's in um, a bunch of pain, there's going to be some progressive exposure to positions and then we can be really confident when it's time to squat so it's not like we go from the table right to squatting with load a lot of the times it's like there's going to be many steps along the way where we're progressively nudging that painful area and then when we go to squat it's going to make a lot of sense they're going to they should have a lot of confidence and then honestly if we've done our job up to that point squatting that's not a a, a really a an exercise that I, especially when you start adding load, that I really want to have a ton of coaching in. It's going to be like, you know, go down and up. See how, if we've done our job and we've, I think this is another um, point is the style squat that you're doing. I think the, basically the transformer bar is kind of my go-to because it provides a lot of constraints. It kind of puts you in the right position. So um, by the time we get to a squat, hopefully I'm not coaching too much and people can kind of take over. And then that's what allows you to start pushing the, the stress end of things because you're not going to be stressing yourself out adequately if you're, if you're thinking a shitload. And we've all seen these people that like, you know, we've... we've well, they become married to specific movements. Correct. And, and I mean, so you, you, you touched on a, a ton of great things that I think worth diving into. For one, how can our listeners kind of apply these concepts that you use in a rehabilitation physical therapy setting to their own training? For one, um, this is something we see all the time in the gym is people that are taking movements through limited ranges. And you ask them, you know, why aren't you going all the way down? Why aren't you going full range? And they say, oh, well, I can't under this much weight because this hurts. So when we talk about intensity, we're talking about load, how, how much something weighs. So if you think, if, if, you, if you apply the concepts that Nick spoke about in the rehabilitation clinic to your own training, understanding that if you're not able to maintain full range, full range of motion or necessary range of motion without pain, you need to lower the intensity or lower the weight and just realize that full range and, and, and proper mechanics are going to be the primary driver. That, that's the most important thing first. Then once you can check all those boxes, and only once you can check all those boxes, and those boxes being full adequate range and also sensory, are you feeling it in the right place? At that point, you can start to increase intensity. Um, it's so important to understand, the, you know, to understand that it's... You, you need to be able to check certain boxes before you progress and you have to have this foundational understanding because what ends up happening is if, if you only go to limited range, that's a dysfunctional movement pattern. That's not a full pattern. And if you add load to a dysfunctional movement pattern, you're only going to strengthen the compensation, if that makes sense. So it's so important to have these, these foundational understandings and boxes that you need to check before you start adding load. Um, there was something else that you brought that I wanted to touch on as well. 
No, I think you're absolutely right about everything you just said there. I think it's really, and it's not sexy, really. It's uh, it's the basic shit. And it's like, if you can't squat with full range, you're leaving, basically, the reason you can't get down there is you're running out of joint room. So for one, it might not be a mobility problem per se, but your ability to control yourself in space isn't there. And you're kind of limited in your ability to, to get through full range of motion. And we talk about basically your ability to apply stress. You're leaving a lot on the table by not getting through full joint range of motion. Yeah, it's this idea and very limited perspective of, oh, I don't squat to death because I have bad knees. Right. More, more often than not, 90% of the time, the knees aren't the issue. It's right. usually ankle or pelvic um, abnormalities or asymmetries that are, that are limiting your ability to achieve full knee flexion at all or without pain. Yeah, and I would even say that, you know, People tend to blame ankles, knees, hips, backs for not getting to squat depth. I think if you zoom out a little bit further, you can start to appreciate that like where your center of gravity is in space is ultimately going to basically dictate how much joint availability there is. So, you know, everybody can see like a, a low bar back squat, for example, that's going to be your, your maximally, basically your, your center of gravity is being pushed forward maximally the bar is on your back just by the barbell being on your back and by compression being in between your shoulder blades and you're squeezing your shoulder blades down and back that's basically like i kicked you in between your shoulder blades and your center of gravity is going forward so that's basically like you run out of hip flexion pretty early when that happens and it's hingy um as it should be um that you, and you run out of hip flexion because when you initiate the lift, you're already in a lumbar extended position. Correct. So, so to communicate this to the listeners, if you're looking at someone down the line, and that was kind of the next concept I was taking, is not to be married to certain lifts. Right. And I'm going to make some more sense of that um, I'm soon after I offer this explanation. But if you look at someone down the line to down the side, when we talk about your center of mass, your center of gravity, obviously, whatever implement, whatever, however you're loaded is going to manipulate your center of gravity. So if you're standing up and you're not holding on to anything, Standing up straight, your center of gravity is going to be right over the midfoot, right below the ankle. Now, when you add a 200-pound barbell on your back, again, looking from the side, that barbell is loaded over the scapula on top of the trap. So that load is going to be displaced over the posterior side or the back of your body, which is going to more than likely encourage you to use an extension-based strategy where there's compression of the lumbar spine, which is going to make your ribs flare out. If you can see that, right, it's going to you know increase the amount of of flexion of the spine your pelvis may anteriorly rotate basically to support that load over your new center of mass that is is a result of where you're loaded so like nick said a low bar back squat is going to be the mo is going to offer the most posterior compression and therefore be the most hingy of the squat patterns um, I, I speak about this lo a lot with my with my clients. It's kind of this squat continuum. So if, if on the right hand, on the hingiest, most posterior compressed version of the squat, that's going to be a low bar back squat. All the way to the left, the other extreme is going to be like a high heel elevated front loaded goblet squat. So when I talk about a goblet squat, I'm speaking about holding a kettlebell over your chest or a dumbbell over your chest. So that's going to be the opposite of a back squat where you're loaded on the anterior portion. 
And that's going to encourage you to be able to create more compression in the anterior cavity or your abdomen, get the ribs down, the pelvis will more than likely come to a more neutral position. And that's going to give, that's going to lend the opportunity for you to leverage different tissues than you would with the low bar back squat. And Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, it's my understanding and my belief and my approach that when we're on the left side, the more anterior loaded, loaded version of the squat, that is going to improve all the other ones down the line on the other side. So improving your ability to anteriorly load front-loaded goblet, high-heel elevated goblet squat, that's going to make your low bar back squat better. Where if you're always doing low bar back squat all the time, you're forcing yourself to always be in a more extended position, always leveraging more low back and, and, and kind of leaving these muscles out on the table that aren't able to be used in that super extended position. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, I, the way I like to think about it is, I agree with everything you said, I, the way I like to think about it is, it's just about bringing the right tool to the job. So if you talk about a low bar competition back squat, if you want to lift the most weight possible, that's the one. So that, that basically your... your but what's going to happen if individuals train that low bar back squat pattern year round? Correct. So here's low. here's the biomechanical cost. So there's a biomechanical cost associated. That's a great. That's a great that. way to communicate. It, so, yeah. it's so basically at, at what like, cost are you are you are you is, is training low bar as heavy as possible all the time going to yield? Right. So basically, the reason you can lift more weight with that strategy is you're taking away degrees of freedom. And what I mean by that is if you compress the backside of your body hard. Basically, your joints, your facet joints, and your and your and your whole spine that you can think of those as like shingles on a roof. So basically, if you extend your back, aka low bar back squat, those shingles are going to slide down, and you're going to basically lock out your back. So now there's no more um, active control required. You have a passively locked out joint, and it's basically stable, quote unquote. So that allows, so basically you don't actually have to control all that much, which is why you can continue to load the primary movers, uh, basically your lower back, your butt, your legs, the, the main guys get the work. A lot of the, the muscles that are going to be required in something like heavy front squat aren't going to be as active. So you're not going to get nearly as much anterior core control as you would with, with something where the implement or a weight where you, it was more biased to the front side of your body. So just understand that like, if you're looking to improve your, your range of motion using a squat, the back squat, the low bar back squat would be the last thing to do. Cause it's basically like you're taking away those degrees of freedom, a goblet squat. Everybody has a great, if you do a heels elevated goblet squat, there's a pretty good chance you have uh, of, of getting asked to grasp without really any coaching. And that's just because it, like you mentioned before, that allows you to move your center of gravity back in space. And that's what's going to improve your ability to dorsiflex your ankle, let your knee translate forward over your toes, um, and basically allow you to use your abs and not just lock your back out. So I think it's about if you're in my setting, where I'm working on people who have, say, a hip impingement with, with a squat, and it's like, okay, if you're back squatting and you have where you're running out of room on the front side of your hip, you have that pinching, especially towards the bottom. It's like, okay, that's, we'll, we'll be aware of that in your back squat. It's, but like the way we're going to get it better is not continuing to back squat. It's like, we got to change the strategy, get you more bandwidth through your joints. And then I think certainly it potentially, it's like, why are you also low bar back squatting? If you're a power lifter and it's like, Hey, listen, this is what I do for sport. Then we got to get back there. But if you're a gen pop client or, um, 
somebody who's like a field sport athlete. Or even a bodybuilder that wants to use the squat to develop their quads. Correct. The low so, bar back squat isn't the show. I know you want to, you think more weight means bigger muscles. Right. But you're sacrificing your ability to target and create tension in the target muscle. Yes. If you're in the low bar back squat. Yeah. And it's like, you know, what's your goal with it? You know, I think that um, that's really the question that, that, I always ask is like, you know, what is your goal? If your goal is to blow bar back squat because you love it, there's certain, I don't want to demonize that by any means. But I also think that, like you mentioned, people get married to these things and it's just kind of like exercise selection matters a lot. So, and I I think that, um, you know, a lot of the times if you just look at somebody's program and it's like, oh, you're low bar back squatting 80% of the year because you're a power lifter. It's like, and deadlifting and and doing heavy rows. Right. It's just the same you're not, you have no variability in the stress that you're putting on your body. So, and then when you're bench pressing, you have a huge arch. So it's extension, 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 extension. And that's, what's going to make you good. You know? So it's like, again, there's that. And then there's like, okay, how do we, you need to create a buffer. So you can only push yourself in one direction for so long before you hit a ceiling. And especially with the more elite level uh, performers, it's like, you know, you've probably hit, not, not you, but like if you're an elite performer, you've probably hit many ceilings. And then it's like, we got to actually despecialize a little bit, deload, um, improve our variability and then go back to specializing. And hopefully we have a higher ceiling. So ultimately I think it's just about, um, figuring out what your goals are and then kind of programming well and executing well. And I think it's much less, uh, complicated than it may seem. It's not like you should be doing 40, you know, you know, prep exercises before you go lift weights. Like if things are going pretty well and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're doing things well, I think it's like, honestly, a lot of times I'll throw med balls and that's my warm up. And it's like, you know, I think people spend endless amounts of time doing like shitty bird dogs and, and a bunch of other things. And it's like, how is that actually changing our strategy when we're applying stress and it's like, that's ultimately where the money's at, I think. Yeah, so kind of a take-home principle with that that you guys can apply to your own training, especially as coaches. So a way you can kind of apply this understanding to your training is if you notice that you need to fire off, you know, more than two or three cues for someone to execute a given lift, I would argue it's probably the wrong variation of that lift. If All you day. remember, maybe about 20 minutes ago, Nick was talking about you know, the way he progresses someone. So they're on the floor at first and, and they, they make all these adjustments and create this, this understanding and competency on the floor that when they get to the squat, they should be able to just squat without a million cues. So if you find yourself or if you're coaching somebody and you're noticing that you have to fire off, you know, half a dozen cues every time for someone to execute the lift appropriately, I would argue that it's probably not the right variation of the lift and you should probably find a different a different application of that lift so that they can do it comfortably with less cues. Then once they master that and they're able to check boxes in that variation, they can go back to the original one and it'll probably be there. So for example, if you're someone who is having a hard time hitting depth with your low bar back squat, very, very common, um, rather than just trying to go deeper and fight these and, and fight these issues that are um, preventing you from hitting depth, you could instead implement more front-loaded variations of the squat that give you access to that range and then add intensity to that for, say, 4, 8, 12 weeks. Then when you go back to the, the low bar back squat, the range will be there and you won't have to fight for it. Correct. Yeah. So that's kind of a nice strategy and kind of a way to apply these concepts of giving your body movement variability and basically using the right tool for the job. Yeah, I think you're spot on there, man. 
Yeah. So um, I, I think, and that, that's, that was one of the, that has to be the greatest concept that I've been able to take home and apply to my training and my client's training in working with Nick is, you know, when I first started, I was, you know, married to the barbell deadlift. I was married to the, to, 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 to the back squat, let's say, high bar, low bar. I usually just kind of say whatever feels better for the individual. Um, and I was married to the barbell bench and married to the barbell overhead press. And the thing is, is more often than not, people really struggle to be able to, you know, display competency in those lifts. So I would cue them, I would, and then I would cue them, and then I would bring them on the floor, and I would do drills, and I would stretch them and open up what I would perceive as tight to try and give them access to adequate range, when really all I needed to do was just change the loading parameter. You know, if someone's having, if someone's not able to deadlift with a barbell, you throw them in a trap bar, and now they have, um, you know, th- they're in the middle of the apparatus, so they have more freedom. They don't have to be behind the barbell. They're able to reach down with a neutral grip, which is going to enable a better rib and torso position and they're going to be able to feel that lift more in the hips in the legs in the hamstrings and and, and maybe even some pressure in the core rather than oh i feel it in my back i feel it in my back the back is obviously a huge contributor to the deadlift but you got to be able to bring other muscles to the party and if and if you're married to certain barbell lifts that can be very limiting and tremendously counterproductive and there there are so many other tools for the job you brought up the uh, the transformer bar so for those of you who aren't familiar with the transformer bar you have an ssb bar which um, was originally created, um, from what I understand, for you know a lot of the the, the very prolific powerlifters, um, you know a lot of guys who have big squats also have big benches, so that offers um, limited shoulder range. So always squatting under a bar would create a lot of pain, be it in their elbows or in their shoulders, because of how tight and muscle bound they were up top. So the SSB allowed them to train the squat with the arms out in front. But now I use the SSB as a means to get people with weight more out in front, kind of a way to, you know, you're, you're limited with a goblet squat and how much you can hold in your hands to train your legs. But with an SSB or a front squat or variations of, you're able to get the weight more out in front, offer some more compression on the anterior side and, and achieve more range of motion and more depth, which is obviously going to carry over to the barbell back squat. And what the Kabuki transformer bar does is you're actually able to manipulate the load um, from not only the camber, but where the load is in space. So you could actually create a barbell back squat with the kabuki transformer bar or a front squat or a goblet squat or a ssb so that bar you know i think it's it's super important in, in any practice be it a physical therapy session or a physical therapy setting or a personal training system to have these tools at your disposal it's 100 worth the investment agreed yeah and i gave you props for uh hooking our clinic up with a. Uh with the transformer oh, yeah, right. bar. I forgot, I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had the original transformer bar that Kabuki came out with, which was a great piece, but it was a bitch to adjust. It had these like wing nuts. Um, and when they came out with this, the, the second version, it had a, a spring-loaded pull pin. So it made the barbell much easier to adjust to go from the front po- squat position to the back squat position. So when I ordered ordered one, I was working with Nick at the time, and I said, he's got to have one. So I ended up ordering him one too, and it's great to see it get some use. Yeah, much appreciated, man. And honestly, that's kind of what we talk about too like that bar constrains the environment so there's not a lot of coaching required when you set it up yeah. for for the person You're able to what? manipulate where yes. the load is so you can get the movement that you want right. rather than just cueing the shit out of people because you know something in all honesty if someone has limited range for whatever reason you can you can tell them to go deeper you can tell them to push their knees out you can tell them to do whatever you want until you're blue in the face if they're not able to do it if they don't have access you have to offer them a different pattern a different movement so that they can get out of what they want yeah no doubt great all right so um those are some some pretty great concepts i hope that all of that was you know 
made sense to you guys. You know, we're limited where we're, we're just speaking in our microphones and we can't, you know, it'd be great to have a whiteboard and draw out some, uh, some, some mannequins for you. But I hope all that made sense and you guys were able to kind of apply some of those concepts. Um, a couple of days ago, I put up a questions box. If you guys had any specific topics you would like to, um, you know, have Nick cover. Recovery type work, foam rolling, static stretching, mobility stuff. Is it best to do a bunch of this on, say, an active rest day once a week or to do a little bit before each training? And that's a great question. Uh, Nick, I'll let you take that. Yeah, for sure. So I think a lot of this is going to be context dependent. Um, I don't, those things are all passive in nature. So it was, uh, can you repeat the, the fo- I know I heard foam rolling. What else was in there? Foam rolling, static stretching, mobility stuff. So okay. foam rolling, yeah. not not super effective. I mean, if it makes you feel better, do it up. I think it's great. Static stretching, not not yeah. not not the play. I say this. I say there's not got, the play. You know, it's one of those things where it's like for me, the big hitters. There's two components that have to be there. There's got to be learning and there's got to be loading. So you're not really getting a lot of either of those things with your foam roller work. Or just like quote unquote mobility stuff. I think mobility training can be good, really good. And when it's done well, it's it's hard as shit. It's not passive. So I think your big rock concepts, you should focus on learning. And by learning, I mean sensory motor competencies. Like, can you actually feel your hamstrings contract? There's, um, you know, variations that, you know, I do till I'm blue in the face in the clinic all day, really just teaching people how to extend their hip well. So, um, and, and there's learning going on during that and there's loading, progressive loading going through there. So I think ultimately if you're, if you're trying to get long-term results, there has to be learning and loading. And I would prioritize your, your movement prep work to include both of those concepts. Sure. So, and if you like the other stuff, like I'm not trying to demonize any of that stuff and, and, and I don't take that away from people by any means, but it's not, I'm not begging people to do a shitload of foam rolling. Some people are like, Hey, listen, man, the foam rolling makes me feel great. Do it up. But I would say it doesn't take the place of learning or loading. Well, I think some concepts that people should understand is when it comes to, all right, I'm tight. So I should foam roll and I should stretch. You know what? Foam rolling and static stretching is going to make you feel better if you're tight. If a muscle's tight, let's say your hamstrings are tight, you know, you could go into a hamstring stretch and hold a pose for 60 seconds. Then when you get up, your hamstring is going to feel looser and you're going to feel great afterwards. But you know what? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, your hamstring is going to be tight again. So it's kind of like a Band-Aid. It's, 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 it's something that is going to make you feel better in the moment, but it's not going to create an adaptation that's going to fix the problem. And I think... Um, we, we can we can briefly cover this and give you guys a better understanding as, as to why. So, why is static stretching, in my in my opinion, and from from my um, from my experience, ineffective? Why is a muscle tight? Number one, yeah, it's tight most likely because it's weak. So, if we look at hamstrings and 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 they're tight, I would argue that the reason why those hamstrings are tight is because they're weak in in relationship and and within um, comparison to the other muscles in the system. So as a result of that, there's a neural adaptation where it's going to create more tone and tension in that muscle when it could be resting because it has to create tension relative to the other stronger muscles. So, you know, years and years ago, there was an understanding that there should be a two to one strength ratio from quads to hamstrings. And then eventually they said, no, it should be one to one. And now people are arguing that you'd be better off to have hamstrings that are stronger than quads. So if I were to take an individual and put them in a leg extension machine, a machine that offers constraints and isolates the quads, 
most guys could probably rack the fucking thing for a set of 10. Yeah. Put them in a hamstring machine, not the same case. Right. So as a result of that, relative to its opposer, the hamstring has to always maintain tension. So if I were to take that tight hamstring through a passive stretch and lengthen the tissue and lengthen the tissues, lengthen the spindles and hold them in a lengthened state so that the body you know, will relax and allow it to stretch. Yes, I will get relief from the tension, but it's not going to fix the issue. So a lot of the times when something's tight, it doesn't need to be stretched. It needs to be flexed. It needs to be strengthened. No doubt. Um, and, and that's kind of why the, the practice of static stretching wouldn't be kind of the go-to recommendation for someone who's experiencing tightness because it may make you feel better in the moment, but it's not going to fix the issue. Um, kind of the same thing with foam rolling. But foam rolling, I think, is, is similar to, you know, walking on a treadmill, riding a bike. It's a great way to just kind of get some, get some heat Get, get, get some stimulus to the tissue to, to get it warm and be able to do work. Um, so I think foam rolling is fine. I think it's a great practice. I use a peanut um, on my feet, on my calves, on my hamstrings, on my back. But again, it's like three to five minutes. I'm not spending 45 minutes rolling around on, on my muscles to get them to feel good. You know, movement is going to be kind of the most important factor. So more often than not, rather than foam rolling, static stretching, mobility stuff, jump on a treadmill and walk for 10 minutes. I mean, that's actually going to warm you up, you know, and, it, and, it, it, and that's going to get your yeah, body temperature yeah, to warm things up. And exactly. I'll tell you what, if you, if you do that before, let, let's say you have kind of your, um, you know, your, 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 warm up routine where you foam roll and you static stretch X, Y, and Z. Let's say I challenge you to walk for 10 minutes and then do those same drills. You're going to notice that it's going to be there right away. You're not going to have to spend a lot of time doing it because you're going to have access to those ranges and, and you're not going to need to do all, all, all of that, all that mobility work anymore because you're going to be warmed up from just walking, just kind of general prep like that. Right. And also if your training is making it so that you need to, feel like you got to get through all that stuff before you can start moving around. Maybe, you know, programming might be something to consider because yeah. it's like, you know, you shouldn't be feeling all jacked up before you work out. Well, here we go. Tingling fingertips. What types of stretching would help with that? So I'm actually dealing with some, perhaps some, some ulnar nerve impingement in my left hand, which um, some of the symptoms are, 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 are tingling in my hands, numbness in my hands, and also a lack of grip strength. Gotcha. Um, so so w what would your approach be if someone's getting tingling in fingertips, if there's any kind of stretching or modalities they could apply to help with that? Yeah, I wouldn't offer anything super specific just based on not knowing a ton of context on why that might be happening. But if you came into my office, I would basically, we'd want to figure out if it was a central issue. Basically, is this coming from your neck and radiating down into your hand or is this more of a peripheral issue um, happening in some of the nerves in the periphery? Um, so there was a, there's a grouping of tests we can do to, to figure out um, kind of if it's central or peripheral. Um, and a, a lot of it is going to be... Um, basically figuring out why is tension going through that nerve is likely related to position and or if you're doing anything um, specific or repetitive um, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and basically the mechanics that you're using to do those tasks could potentially um, sensitize some of those nerves. So um, I think they're Potentially nerve gliding or flossing could be helpful, um, but I would hesitate to make that blanket recommendation before we figured out if it was a central or peripheral issue. But um, basically coming down to the longer term approach of, of making your ceiling higher before uh, while you're dealing, uh, let me rephrase that. So you probably want to learn to move, if you're moving well and joint access is available and biomechanics are going well, there's a 
probably a good chance that that nerve sensitivity is not going to be there. So um, I wouldn't necessarily just blanket stretch. I would get assessed by a professional and and come up with some strategies to get you moving better. Um, I would also go ask a few more questions to figure out if you would they would be a good candidate for an MRI because um, that certain certainly can be something to look at. Sure. Um, while we're on the topic of, of, of kind of that area, I think touching on elbow tendonitis and elbow pain is definitely something that a lot of people suffer from myself included. And and I deal with it a lot with clients and friends, you know, a lot of guys that are pressing and lifting and pulling. um, They're always complaining about elbow pain. So so some kind of low hanging fruit um, similar that that can help with that similar to the quadricep and hamstring um, comparison that I, that I used earlier. When we talk about the, the, the muscles of the forearm that flex the wrist versus the muscles of the forearm that extend the the wrist um, you see you, you tend to find a massive discrepancy there too we're so much stronger because of all the gripping and pulling and flexing of the wrist that those muscles on the on, on the underside of the forearm that flex the wrist are much stronger than the muscles above that extend the wrist and what that can create is a tremendous imbalance at the epicondyle of the elbow where the flexors insert and where the extensors insert so more often than not just focusing upon some 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 extensor strength um you know, it's, of course, I'm not, I'm not a PT and that's kind of a blanket approach, but I've had personally a lot of relief in myself and with clients. If you just work on strengthening the extensors to bring them up a bit in comparison to the overpowering flexors can, can offer some relief in that joint. Additionally, something in the shoulder. How's your internal external rotation at the shoulder joint? If you have limited external rotation, that's going to present itself and manifest in the elbow, um, which is very, very interesting. A lot of the times with, with chronic pain, when it comes to chronic pain of the elbow, chronic pain of the back, chronic pain of the knee, um, things that just kind of manifest over time. And there isn't one, there wasn't like a specific acute occurrence where you injured that area. Chronic pain is usually the symptom and not the cause. So if you're dealing with elbow pain, again, that's the symptom. The cause may be a tremendous imbalance in the flexors and extensors. It could be lack of range in the shoulder, could be poor rib cage position. So kind of looking a bit deeper, like you said earlier, zooming out and looking at the big picture is usually where you're going to find your solution. Can you, can you add to that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, kind of specifically to the elbow, I think the elbow and the knee are pretty similar. Um, and then basically, they're between two other joints. So basically... Two other joints that are much more mobile and have more joint actions than just flexor and extension. Yeah, so a lot of times if you're having elbow discomfort, or knee discomfort it's like I'm looking at the wrist and I'm looking at the shoulder and the scapulothoracic joint um and and a lot of the times uh what's going on at the elbow is going to be a direct um there's going to be a direct correlation between kind of what's going on above the joint and what's going on below the joint um with with people who are have a strength training background um say your typical power lifter say so if you're if you're good at power lifting you can probably internally rotate your arm pretty well, or basically it's required that you internally rotate your arm to grab the barbell. So if you are just biased towards that internally rotated position, then it's likely you're missing external rotation or your ability to supinate your hand. That's going to have a direct influence on your humerus bone, which is your your upper arm bone. Um, And then basically you can really overwork and torque your elbow if you can't basically supinate or externally rotate your upper arm well. So um, a lot of weightlifting is going to require compression. So we kind of talked about this with the low bar back squat. um, And it basically your ability to internally rotate is going to be correlated with your ability to compress. Um, So uh, buying yourself some more external rotation globally um, is going to be super helpful for basically all of what your elbow needs to feel good. Yeah, 
so applying that back to the squat again, it's like the low bar back squat and extension-based pattern is going to target and overload specific tissues and other tissues aren't going to get stimulus. So low bar back squat, hinge, lots of low back, maybe some glutes, some leg, um, but very, very minimal abdominal involvement, oblique involvement. So basically, basically offering patterns to to give you access to leverage those tissues that are in the back seat are not used at all. And that compression based strategy is going to help increase your ceiling and help avoid the overuse injuries like chronic back pain, chronic knee pain, looking at um, the wrist and the upper extremity, we're pressing all the time. And like he said, internally rotating all the time, which is going to develop your ability to compress and internally rotate and therefore limit your ability to externally rotate. And that lends itself to um, a bit of an understanding when it comes to, I mean, so often we see strength athletes, especially in the strongman community, popping biceps, right. tearing biceps. I, I'm very, very confident to say that if you're an individual that you know, tore a bicep or is at risk for a bicep tear, you probably have very limited shoulder external rotation. Yeah. And, you know, of course, a way to, you know, uh, a way to avoid a bicep tear would be to strengthen the bicep, do bicep curls. That That's one way and that's important. But I would argue it's just as important, if not more important, to assess your shoulder range of motion. If you notice that you have... Uh, that you have limited shoulder external rotation, I would definitely address that because that is going to lend itself to bicep injuries. Again, you know, the the the, the elbow and the, the ability for the elbow to function is going to be completely dependent upon your wrist's ability to function and your shoulder's ability to function. Yeah, no doubt. And I would also say that your ability to supinate your hand or rotate your palm up towards the ceiling is going to be associated with your ability to externally rotate. Yeah. Your biceps of main role of it is it supinates your hand or turns your palm up towards the ceiling so yeah. if you don't have access to that and you're applying a bunch of stress to your bicep it just the leverages aren't suitable for for appropriate tendon loading yeah so that that's a great way to kind of evaluate yourself if you notice uh, try, try and do a chin-up try and do a chin-up on a straight bar um and if you notice that it's super uncomfortable in the posterior capsule of your shoulder um, and, and you're, you're much more comfortable with a neutral grip or an overhand grip, which we all are, but if you have an issue accessing that supinated or palm-up range of motion, be it in a straight bar bicep curl or a chin-up or um, you know even just, just go, go on a lat pull-down and, and grab uh, the straight lat bar with a supinated grip and give it a pull, if you're noticing that that's a very, very challenging pattern for you, I would definitely recommend... Um, assessing and trying to improve your ability to externally rotate because it's going to increase your ceiling and also dramatically decrease the chances of having a bicep issue, which I'm seeing more and more. I mean, in competing in strongman for five or six years, I've witnessed firsthand probably three or four bicep tears, and I'm aware of another half a dozen or more people who have popped their biceps. And, you know, it's there's risks involved with with sport. There's risks involved in competing in strength sports, but they can be mitigated. For sure, um, it, it, taking a more thorough and more varied approach. If you find yourself you're always training and moving in the same patterns, you're going to lend yourself and expose yourself to potential injuries on the other side. Yeah, I'll um, I'll share an analogy that uh, my colleague uh, Alex Zimmerman kind of often talks about, and it's really just dynamic systems theory, which is kind of what we've been talking about about giving yourself more variability in your joints. So there's two scenarios um, and you're getting from point A to point B. Scenario number one, there's one road that connects A to B. 
And in scenario number two, there's five roads that connects point A to point B. If you are very specialized and good in your sport or having discomfort, there's a very good chance that there's only one road to get from point A to point B and you're just maxing it out and it basically beat the shit. If we can get you more access to more variations of movement, which is kind of what we've been talking about. Now you have five different roads to kind of spread that stress out. And that just becomes like, you need variability in your joints. So you maintain multiple ways. What we know about skilled movement is that the best movers are not doing the same thing. Even though it looks the same, the strategy is not exactly the same. There's, they have variability and they can they can spread that stress out over, they have more bandwidth to spread that stress out. So it's like, if you're, and again, that's not gonna necessarily correlate with, um, I think to some degree to maximize the, the heaviest, or the, the, the person who can bench press the most in the world probably doesn't have enough variability and that gives them you know, an edge to make them good at what they're doing, but it might also kind of, they might have a shelf life there. So I think even the best, especially the people who are um, competing at a high level, it's like you need to make sure you maintain that buffer of maybe it's not five roads, maybe it's one or two roads that you can start to, to create that buffer with in your joints and spread that stress out. So I think what you're speaking to a way that, you know, the, the meatheads of the world and the competitive power of the strength athletes, how can they apply this concept? I think what he's talking about is just the importance of an off season. Yeah, exactly. So after exactly. a peak, um, you know, Kevin Oak spoke about this very specifically, and I think he's worth listening to. He's a pretty strong guy. After he competes, he doesn't touch a barbell for two, three months, or as, or as long as necessary. It's the importance of the off season to offer your body and your systems a different stimulus um, to, to kind of get away from what you've been training and what you've maxed out. You know, you've been on that road, that specific road, and you've worn that road you know, completely down. And so if you start taking other paths, you give that road a chance to be repaired. And then when you go back to that road again, as you get closer to a peak and you have to become more specialized, again, you've increased your ceiling because you've offered your body new stimulus and new stresses. Yeah, exactly. Um, I looked into Kevin Oak when you, I saw that you had him on the podcast. That dude's a, a beast. In college, he was a uh, 100 meter all American sprinter, just yeah. an absolute beast. But I think that also lends to the fact that I know he's not doing that anymore, but like, having a robust base of just not being good at one thing, I think is it really lends to longevity and sustainability in your training, which is the X factor. Like if you're, if you're constantly in this state of like, I need to peak and you're like in that peak phase, that shit's not sustainable. It's like, you need to kind of have uh, a, a, especially if you're operating at a high level, like a year plan of how you're going to stress your body is when you're going to offer yourself some different strategies. And that's ultimately what's going to allow you to be sustainable, which I think is, you know, the, if you can be sustainable, you're going to make progress. Yeah. I think we start to see like, you know, people peak, they beat the shit out of themselves and they got to take months off to get back to where they are. And they're just kind of constantly like trying to get back to where they were versus like taking a, 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 again, a zoomed out approach where it's like, let's look at the year. Let's figure out when it makes sense to apply certain stimuluses. Let's see when it doesn't make sense to apply those stimuluses. And I think you have a much better handle on kind of a progressively uh, at, adding stress stimulus to your body without having any hiccups with it. Yeah. And realizing that you're not, you're not taking time off, you know, the, these off season protocols of offering different variations of the same lifts 
are going to have a tremendous impact on the competition lifts. Um, you know, you're not taking a step back. I mean, essentially you are, you're taking a step back, you know, because you're, you're bringing down load and you're offering different stimulus and using different bars, using different movements, but don't think about it as taking a step back. Instead, think about it almost as like you're loading a slingshot. So you're taking a step back, but you're taking a step back into a slingshot. And the more time you spend offering different variabilities and different stresses when it's time to go back to the competition lifts you're going to let that slingshot go and you're going to fly and be able to actually you know become come, come back better and more resilient in a better position to take it to the next level than if you were to just get back under a bar after a peak and even if you feel good even if you don't have any aches and pains even if you don't feel like you have any you know compensatory strategies or issues that need to be addressed it still would serve you very well to take an off season and offer your system some variability to bulletproof your system more so when it comes time for your next prep your next meet you're in a great position to be successful yeah no that's awesome man and i would say like don't confuse an off season for not working hard because it's like do some tempo reps under a front squat like you're going to be fucking working hard so so it's not like you're not working hard it's basically like you're just in a way that's strategic altering the stress and i think ultimately that's that's what it's all about. And what's nice, too, is you're able to work harder because chances are pretty good. You're not going to be fighting through the chronic aches and pains and stresses that you normally do if you're doing the same movements all the time. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, man, my knees don't bother me when I'm doing this variation of the squat. So I can actually push a bit further because I feel it where I'm supposed to rather than fighting through these aches and pains that we just accept as the norm as competitive strength athletes. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. Uh, cupping. Is it worth it? If so, why or why not? Yeah, it's one of the, that's another kind of I would put that in the bucket of like if you like it, I like it. I'm not begging people to go get cupped. Um, just like I'm not begging people to I, I do some dry needling. That's kind of I, I think soft tissue work, um, whether it be massage, um, dry needling, cupping, scraping. I think it's all working on a similar mechanism in terms of uh, it's altering your neurophysiology. So it's offering you a window of opportunity where your body potentially is perceiving less threat. That's when you'll quote unquote feel looser or like you can maybe move a little bit more comfortably. Um, And I think that if you're using that as a medium to go then learn and load that tissue, then I think it's a great thing. Um, It's, I haven't seen it be a silver bullet. Honestly, I have people that love it and it's like, you know what, if you love it, do it up. I'm not going to stand in your way of that. Um, But honestly, it's going to come down to like, if you like it, I like it. It's not going to be something that I'm, uh, you know, again, begging you to go do, but I would stick it in the same bucket as, as any other manual therapy or, or symptom management modality. It's kind of funny how, you know, what, what really popularized cupping is is, is uh, a few years ago in the Olympics when Dan Phelps stepped up on the diving board and he was, co- he was covered in cupping marks. And everyone's like, oh my God, cupping, this new right, amazing right. practice. It's like the cupping's been around for 100,000 right. years in Chinese medicine. And I agree with you. It's kind of like, if it feels good, do it. It's not, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to really change your life. It's not like, oh, you know, I need cupping and I got cupping done and, and, and it changed my life. It fixed whatever was going on. It can make you feel better. It can offer some relief. Um, really, so some of the, because I've had a lot of cupping done, um, you know, very, very aggressive and also kind of kind of lighter, you know, while I, while I had acupressure, that was the first time I was exposed to it. And I've also had it done um, from other practitioners here and there. And um, one time I, 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 I was squatting or deadlifting and I, and I popped my back and my back was pretty locked up. 
And what was really nice, actually Henry did this, he put uh, cups on the area. And typically, you know, the, the, how you see cupping is, is you, you, you put a cup on, on a given area where, where it be tight or a certain trigger point and you just let it rest there and, and it gets all purple and it looks like complete shit and, and you know, you think it did something. But um, what Henry actually did was he, he put two or three cups on my low back and after it sat there for a bit, he actually manipulated and moved the cups. Um, and that offered a ton of relief. Yeah. I, I think basically being able to get in and it was almost kind of like a, a manual approach where he used the cups to anchor on, on, on the, you know, the, the, on the skin above the muscle that was bothering me. And then he was able to kind of move and manipulate it. Um, perhaps maybe break up, you know, some, some of, some of the fascial areas that, that were tight and, and, and were, you know, in trauma because of the pop. And I, I had, I had some great relief with it. Yeah, no. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, if I could add to my, my explanation, I think that if you're using it to manage a chronic issue, that's kind of where I was going with my, yeah. I'm not begging people to continue to cup, but I think if you're, and again, this is, Cupping, dry needling, manual therapy, massage therapy for an acute issue, I think is hugely important. Um, so I, I, my office is upstairs from a chiropractor, Dr. Dennis Lanny. So we send people downstairs all the time for soft tissue work when they can't move and they're in, they have discomfort. So I think that from an acute standpoint, it can help. Um, but I think it's, it's one of many tools that are in the toolbox for, um, again, getting you out of pain and hopefully moving more. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you nailed it. So it's like cupping, massage, any uh, dry needling, any of these modalities alone, it, it's not going to fix the issue. But what it can do is offer some relief so you can then move with less discomfort and, and, and then fix the problem through movement and Correct. pattern recognition. Yeah. So it, it, it's a tool and, it, and it's a small piece to the rehabilitation uh, puzzle. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of what people I think consider physical therapy to be is that like the passive modality end of things, which certainly has its time and place for sure. But I think where the money's really at is the progressive loading end of things. So yeah. if it's a chronic issue, get progressively loaded in ways that make sense. If it's an acute issue, cupping and the other things we've discussed, I think are, are really powerful options to get you out of pain and moving more comfortably. Yeah, so, so that, that, that's, I think, perhaps the, the biggest take-home message when it comes to understanding all these modalities and tools is, is that they have their place and where their place is is to get people comfortable so that they can then get back moving which is what's going to be what fixes the underlying issue. Yeah, that's the moving, learning, and loading. That's the long-term strategy. So again, for chronic things, if this has been going on more than two, three months, we're in that kind of chronic phase of, of what's going on. And you can still use modalities to manage pain, but it shouldn't be in the absence of a progressively loaded program that makes sense for you. Great. Good. That's a great comment. I'm glad, I'm glad we touched upon that. Um, do you actually keep the hip scoop all throughout the squat or just at the top of the squat? So to, to, to communicate to you guys what we're talking about with hip scoop, we spoke about um, with the low bar back squat and how it creates compression in the low back, which therefore would most likely create what's called an anterior pelvic tilt. So if you guys visualize the pelvis or the hips, an anterior pelvic tilt would be if the pelvis was dumped forward. So if you think about the pelvis as a water basin, anterior pelvic tilt would be the, 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 the pelvis rotated forward and water would pour out the front. So the, you have to understand that if the pelvis rotates forward and dumps out in the front, that also mean that it means that it elevates in the back, which is going to contribute to even more spinal compression from the bottom. So when we talk about scooping the hip, it's essentially creating rotation at the hip 
to go, to come back to neutral. So when you scoop the hip, we all usually walk around and, and, and maintain a position of an anterior pelvis. Would you, would you agree with that? So scooping is bringing it back to neutral. That that's the that's the scoop cue. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, so when I walk out a squat or before I deadlift and I'm standing over the bar, the first thing I do. So let's say I, I take the barbell out and I walk out. The first thing I'm going to do is take an exhale to get my pelvis scooped and get it neutral and get it underneath me and underneath the load and underneath the center of mass which is going to allow me access to more tissue than just my low back that would be the the scoop uh cue applied to a squat and the the benefit of a goblet squat or a front squat is it's probably already going to be there right because the load is over the anterior side so again the question is hopefully you guys understand what we mean by hip scoop do you actually keep <laughs> the hip scoop all throughout the squat or just at the top i'm gonna maybe provide a little bit more context to just the hip scoop. Cause I think that um, I've seen my practice a lot. People tend to take these cues and they just overdo the shit out of them. So it's like, so they hit- go from an anterior pelvic tilt to a posterior right. pelvic and tilt. And like, nobody wants to see a rounded lower back. Like you just know that looks like shit. So it's like, I, I would say if you're kind of rounding through your lumbar spine, which is a lot of the times what's going on. If you are kind of keeping the scoop throughout the lift, I think the reason, the reason you are, what we would call kind of counter mutating your pelvis or, or I'm sorry, your sacrum or basically taking your, your sacral bone and posteriorly tilting or, or scooping. The sacrum is, is, is the, is the lowest point of the spine. It's at the, it's at the bottom. So it's behind that's your tailbone, correct? Tailbone. Yep. So basically the reason that we're doing that is so our femurs can then internally rotate on a pelvis that's allowing for that to happen. So basically if you're in an anteriorly tilted position, then your basically pelvis is rotated forward in space, like it's you mentioned. It's going to limit your, your femur's ability to rotate within that joint. Correct. And that's, and that's basically if you've got hip impingement or your hip is pinching, there's a, a, a good chance that you're trying to internally rotate on a pelvis that's basically not allowing for that to happen. Yeah. So if we, are, if we can get you to, quote unquote, scoop the pelvis, I would say think less of it about like maintaining the scoop the whole way down that should provide a solid base for your femurs to then internally rotate and when that starts to happen you're just going to be feeling a shitload of work going or pressure and force going into the ground and then i think you probably should zoom out of where your pelvis is in space because if you're thinking about where your pelvis is in space and again this is one of those things where like you want to set up the squat so that you don't have to think about where you are in space you want to feel a heavy squat in your face. Like you don't want to feel like you're, you're thinking about or micromanaging your movement. So I would say like the, the point of the scooping of your pelvis is to, to provide um, a good scenario for your femurs to then internally rotate. And by that happening, you're just going to feel like you have a very good ability to put force down through the midfoot and that you feel like you just have lots of good force into the ground. And then you, your, your nervous system is going to take over from there. This, we, um, we should be self-organizing which is like your body's not designed to think about how you're moving procedurally. And we'll do that in, in a rehab setting where we're kind of learning a little bit. There's a procedural component to that. But the goal is to then basically expose you to that stress in a learning environment first and then progressively dose that stress so that you can start to self-organize into these patterns yeah. where it's like if you're if you're not self-organizing you're probably micromanaging movement and this is not the way our brain and our nervous system are designed to work we want to be task specific not necessarily going through all of the steps of of 
scoop the hips, drive the knees forward. If you're thinking about more than one or two cues, um, I would say maybe we missed the boat on that. But to answer the question, no, you do not want to be scooping your pelvis throughout the squat. There's actually going to be a period of the squat right in that. So if you break the squats up into, into three zones, you have your first zone, which is like zero degrees of hip flexion to 60 degrees of hip flexion. Um, and that would be um, the, the, the degrees where you would be want to be kind of quote unquote scooping. And then from 60 degrees all the way through 90 degrees, we actually want a little bit more what we call nutation of your sacrum, which is actually going to be more of a associated with like an anterior pelvic tilt. Um, and really what we're after is, is relative motion between the femur and the acetabulum, which is the socket of your hip. So um, you shouldn't be able to see any of this stuff going on, um, but it's not just about the scoop. The scoop is going to be correct in the first third and the bottom third of the squat. And then that middle third, there's going to be a component of, uh, of more of a nutated or anteriorly tilted pelvis. Um, so I think the, the way to understand that concept is, is if you're anteriorly rotated at the top, you're not going to be able to achieve more anterior rotation in that second zone. Yeah, and that's, and that's why a lot of people run out of room, and that's why a lot of people can't hit depth because they already start in that anterior position. So when they go to squat down where there's going to be a need for, for you to go into anterior, um, it, it's not going to be there because it, you've already started in that position. So right. that's why, to, to answer the question, it's not throughout the squat. It, it is just at the top because that's going to offer you more access. It's going to let the femurs track in the hip um, you know, better. You're going to have more range. And also you're going to be able to go into that anterior position because you're, you're scooped. You're neutral in the beginning and then you go a bit anterior, say halfway down in the squat. That's fair, yeah. And then when you go into the bottom, it actually mutates and goes back to neutral in the bottom bottom of the squat and then um, repeats as, as you ascend during the concentric. Yeah. Yeah. I would say I agree with all that. Yeah. So position dictates everything. The start position dictates everything. Um, so to take that, to, to kind of take that a bit further is when, when, when I'm looking at somebody's squat, if they walk the barbell out and I'm standing down the line view, if I notice that their hips, if, if the bars on their shoulders and their hips are behind the barbell, um, that's going to be anterior rotation of the pelvis and compression of the spine. So what I want to see is I want to see them get the hips scooped and underneath the barbell so that they're stacked. Then they can take their brace, and as they descend into the squat, the pelvis, like Nick said, will start to go into an, and go into an anterior rotation because they have access to be able to do that because they started neutral or scooped. And then in the very bottom of the squat, it's going to, the, the pelvis is going to, or should anyway, kind of go back into a, a neutral position and then back anterior as they come up. And then at the end of the rep, it's so important to get back into that scooped neutral position. What I see a lot of the times as people are navigating through a set of three or five or eight, a lot of the times they'll nail their first rep. And then when they come up before their second, they, 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 they go back into that extended strategy where they're anteriorly rotated again. So it's important if you're doing a set of five, six, seven, eight or more squats, you have to treat it. If you just say you're doing a set of five, treat it as five singles. So when you complete that first rep, get back into that stacked position, get the pelvis underneath and scooped again in neutral and then start the second rep. Come all the way up. Get back into your start position and then start the third. Um, that, that, you know, that, that, that can lend itself 
to um, you know poor patterns and each squat gets worse and worse and worse without going back into that neutral position and that's also why I, I definitely lean especially if you're looking for a strength adaptation to not to avoid touch and go deadlifts as well when you set the barbell down recreate your start position um, get the hips wedged in get the get the weight underneath you get wedged into the barbell and then complete the second rep if you're doing sets of five treat it as five singles make sure you you, you put yourself in a position to be successful each individual rep yeah no i, I use that cue all the time um yeah, the other thing i think that it, it, people are probably pretty familiar with a butt wink so if you're starting in that anteriorly tilted position at the top you run out of hip flexion and then you get basically that dumping back of your pelvis which is uh, a butt wink i think is also remedied by basically starting in a in a better position and a lot of times manipulating how where the load is 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 my first step to to create that change yeah i think i think that's a great topic that you brought up and and a great question to answer without it even being asked you know butt wink it happens in the bottom of the squat but the bottom of the squat isn't what needs to be fixed it's the top of the squat right without starting with a neutral pelvis you're, you're exposing yourself to to a butt wink or the stripper squat where the ass comes up first it, it's and and again the, the issue and the problem is occurring in the bottom of the squat but the solution is at the beginning correct the same thing interestingly enough is guys who us uh, who 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 have issue with the lockout of their deadlift they oh, i gotta work on my lock i gotta work on my lockout i gotta do rack pulls and partials to increase my lockout strength no, you don't. The reason why you're running out of power in the top end of the deadlift is because your start position needs to be manipulated. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and it's interesting because you're looking, you look at at the bottom of the squat, you think something's wrong at the bottom. It's not. It's the start position. It's the same exact thing with the deadlift. We're obviously much stronger, and our ability to create force above the knee when you're pulling is going to be much greater than below. If you're running out of, if, if you're losing power, you're not able to lock out the deadlift. You don't need to improve your lockouts. Accommodating resistance isn't going to help um, with that. It, it will help with the deadlift overall, but it's not going to fix your lockout strength. What's going to fix your ability to lock out is fixing your start position. Yeah, no, all day. I agree. You can't really get where you're going if you start in the wrong spot. Absolutely. Yeah. And the position is going to dictate everything, and, and what you initiate with is going to do the most work. So making sure that you're giving yourself the opportunity to be successful in the beginning where you initiate the lift is going to be most important. Um, what are some things you used to rely on in training or rehab that you've stopped doing? This is a, a great question because my training, and I'm sure Nick's training, and, and anyone else's training who's getting somewhere is always evolving. It's always changing. Um, the the meat and potatoes is always still there. We talked about the compound lifts are always there, but th- there's always going to be some 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 manipulating and, and some changing as as you progress um, over time with training. So, what are some things that you used to rely on? In training or rehab that you've stopped doing. For me, um, less foam rolling, less static stretching. Yeah. No, I think we, we kind of touched on that. I definitely, just like everybody else, saw the value in that early on. That's kind of honestly in physical therapy school. That's a lot of what you, you don't learn a lot about. You learn joint biomechanics, but I learned a lot of that shit from the strength and conditioning field, honestly. So um, pain management is really kind of what's, um, I think at least in my program, and I don't want to bash the curriculum or anything, but um, there's not a lot of uh, progressive exercise in PT school. So you kind of do get um, kind of, you know, manual therapy, a lot of passive modalities that you're, you know, basically I'm doing something to you when you come to my office. And, and more recently, it's just kind of like if they're, again, I keep going back to this, if you're not learning and loading, I'm not convinced we're creating long-term changes. So, um, you know, I would say I've, I've kind of gotten people up and moving a lot quicker 
where it's like, I look at myself as more of a, a purveyor of information than like, you're going to come to my office and I'm going to do something magical to you and you're going to be fixed. It's like, I tend to, I don't think that at all, honestly. It's like, I'm going to hopefully, um, have an asset, we're going to do an assessment and then we're going to talk about how you can take control of basically improving your sensory motor competencies and, and learning how to progressively load your body. Cause that's a lifetime skill. But to, to answer the question more specifically, um, I used to overcoach the shit out of movement. I used to be kind of like a perfectionist when it's like, I know mechanically what I'm looking to see. Um, it needs to look this way. And if it doesn't, we're not getting max benefit. What I've really started to appreciate and notice, um, this stuff's called what's called nonlinear. So it's not like um, as much as we want to believe that we make like progressive improvements each day at a consistent and progressive, like if you were looking at a graph, it's just kind of like a straight upwardly trending line. Our I wish. That, <laughs> yeah, right. If that the case, would all be super jacked and squatting a thousand pounds. Right. And I do think that there is some validity to, you know, linear periodization. But I think that uh, with the skilled, skill development, like it's, uh, it's nonlinear. So basically letting, I, I've kind of decreased my, we want to find safe to fail positions. Like let them learn by me stopping you from doing what I would consider maybe like a less than optimal looking squat. I'm robbing you of that opportunity to just start to uh, appreciate all of these different options. Cause I think to write or, or quote unquote, like correct form is not necessarily like there, it, there's a range of correct. And I think that you really need to, to understand like what's the green zone here. Um, and it's likely not like a you didn't, you weren't in the perfect position. You're done. We need to, we need to fix this quote unquote. But I think that, um, ultimately for, for long-term results in motor learning and development, um, you need a lot of practice and you need a lot of practice that might not be optimal. Um, and I think that I've just started to let my, my barometer of, or my gauge of, of when I'm stepping in and cueing and coaching, I think has gotten less sensitive. And, and I think that it's gotten, um, it's made me really reflect on my programming because it's like, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna coach without coaching. So it's basically like, I wanna set the environment up for you. You wanna, te you wanna teach your clients how to fish yeah. rather, than, rather, than give them, rather than give them a fish. Exactly. And it's like, I think through your periodization and your program design um, and, and kind of what positions you're exposing people to, if all of that is well thought out, then I should have to say one to two cues max. Yeah. And, and so um, that wasn't always how I operated. I was kind of a perfectionist. And I look back at that, I'm like, wow, I really robbed some people of uh, some practice that I think ultimately would have uh, lended itself much better than to, you know, me being a, uh, you know, pretty much like a hard ass on like, hey, listen, this needs to look like X, Y, and Z. Um, and I think a lot of the times that if you just provide the right context, you can have people you know, mess up a bunch in those positions and then ultimately they're going to be better off. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely. I, I would agree that it creates more of an opportunity for learning. And that's what the, um, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. Yeah. Shouting and throwing cues out all the time. And like we said earlier, if you have to cue a ton, you're probably taking them to the wrong, to the wrong movement. So that's something that's been changed to me as well as being able to be more versatile and have more tools in my belt to provide people with the correct movement to get the, the, the outcome that we're looking for, um, as well as leave, leave, leaving it to them a bit more to to kind of to kind of go through, make mistakes within you know the realm of safety, um, so that they so that they can they can learn and have a better understanding and take it on their own a bit more. Yeah, and I think that if we're really talking about okay, like if if I have to work with you for ten minutes to make it look a certain way, that's probably not going to be reproducible for you. So it's probably uh, not helpful, right? Yeah. We want to basically we need to be practical and reproducible with our, with our, um, 
with our ability to execute these things. Sure. Um, some advice that uh, we may have on starting a small business and what are three things that we would change if we could start over? We could do a whole podcast. Yeah, we'll, try, sure. we'll try and limit it to about, sure. to about a minute each. So Nick, you can go first. Yeah, starting a small business, it's honestly, uh, I don't think I would have been ready to start a small business right out of school. I think I needed to kind of learn on somebody else's dime, so to speak. I spent five years in another clinic just learning, uh, getting confident, kind of interacting with people. Um, so I don't think I would have been um, ready right out of school. Um, so I would say just take your time with it, get experience, build a clientele, have a side hustle. I started training people out of my garage well before I started my own practice just to get my reps in. I was able to pay my mortgage with kind of my side hustle. And then I was like, all right, uh, you know, I wasn't ready to take a shitload of risk. So I built it up, um, you know, a bit before I, before I kind of jumped ship at my, at my nine to five. Um, so just kind of take your time with it, surround yourself with people that are, that are supporters. Honestly, Steve, you were, were awesome for, uh, you've just always made it seem very possible, uh, just through hard work. And, um, you know, you've also given me a lot of confidence for just like investing in your business. You know, I see what you built here and it's like, you know, you should feel confident. And, and if you can surround yourself with the right people, um, where that type of can do attitude is kind of going on. Like, uh, I think a lot of times if you, if you talk to people about starting a business, they're like, Oh, you don't want to do that. And they'll tell you a million reasons why not. But if you have conviction and keep you those have, people, the yeah, you. exactly. Surround yourself with people <laughs> that are doing it. And it's like, you know, there's risk. In people, people that people that are okay. If things go wrong, yeah. because they have, they have the confidence in themselves that, that, you know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Yeah. And you know? it's like, if you can just adopt that mindset, it's pretty hard to fail. And I think that you just want to, you know, I was, I was in a position where I was able to start my business without a ton of debt due to the, the, the structure of my business. So I think, you know, if you do it well, you can mitigate risk a lot. And then, um, you know, put yourself in a position where, um, you know, it's sink or swim. And basically, if you're willing to work hard and you have, if you've thought out your strategies and you've kind of done the prep work, um, I don't think there's ever been a better time to be growing a business with all these resources we have available to market to our people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the biggest difference for, for my physical therapy clinic. It's like we don't rely on, you know, your typical primary care physician to be sending us people. We've kind of tried to go out to the consumer and market, form relationships with gym owners, and just kind of foster a more of a, a community um, uh, of people who know what we're doing and, and are seeking out our service. So um, yeah, I, I'm always optimistic on small business. It was the only move for me. Um, but yeah, I would encourage you to do it. Just kind of take your time getting your ducks in a row before you before you just get it done. Yeah, I think it's not for everybody. Um, and not to say that, that, that people that, you know, aren't necessarily cut out for owning their own business are, are less than, you know, th there's a lot of value to, to be individuals that want to go to work, check in at nine, check out at five and go home and do All what day. they want to do. Yeah. Um, I've never been that way. Um, I remember at a, at a very young age coming up and, and, and once I started working and friends started working, I remember very specifically, I kind of had this, this odd, um, this odd reaction to individuals who would approach me and say, Hey man, I got this new job. Um, I have more time off. I'm making more money. And then, you know, it's really easy. I don't have to do shit. It's awesome. And I just remember hearing that. And, you know, I, I remember just kind of being like, that kind of sounds like shit to me. I don't, that's not, that doesn't really fucking excite me. I'm getting paid more to do less. And I, and I, and I, I questioned that about myself. I, I was very curious as to like, why, like, why wouldn't that be awesome? I'm making more money to do less. I've, that's, I've never, that's never been me. It's always, I always kind of liked hearing 
hey, man, I got this new job. It's kind of risky. I took a cut in pay, but you know what? It's given me some opportunities to do X, Y, and Z. It's challenging. I'm learning a lot. Hard. You know, I, I hear that, and I, I kind of get like, I, I kind of feel, I get a little excited. So I think that, that that's a that's kind of a, an innate characteristic that some people have and other people don't. Um, and I think that that is, is, is a box that definitely needs to be checked if you're someone that wants to go off on your own. You're someone that... You need to be someone that, that always wants to learn, that always wants to adapt, that, 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 that is never satisfied. Um, and, and that, you know, those characteristics aren't going to be fed working underneath somebody else, you know. So you're probably better off going on your own. But like Nick said, a very good point. Um, work for other people as long as you can stand it because there's a ton of value in the lessons you learn, not only on how to do things, but also what not to do. Um, I learned a tremendous amount at um you know some of the gyms i worked at on things that i saw that worked that i liked that i implemented in my own life and my own practice but i also learned a lot of things that i didn't like that i didn't think was right as far as you know management and um you know being present x y and z um you know so there, there's tremendous value in in, in, in getting your reps in like like, like nick said and, and and putting your time in because you, you need that you need that that foundational understanding before you're off to go on your own and also it's so important to generate some type of income some type of business because the thought of opening a brick and mortar facility at zero and having to take out a loan to cover you know the capital investment for the build out and the equipment but also you know to take out a loan to cover 18 months of foreseeable expenses because you don't have an income that's crazy then you got to then you got to spend money on marketing and getting it out there whereas if you have a practice and you have a following and you have experience you know I was fortunate when I opened my first location that I was in the green I was profitable day one because I had a personal training business I was able to bring on a couple of the trainers who had a business for, uh, for themselves so once the doors were open we were making money right away and I think that's super super important um, as far as three things that I would change I, I wouldn't really change much because um, everything lent itself to um, a, you know, an, a learning experience. It's kind of been a part of the process. I will say that it took me a while to be comfortable and okay with asking for help and not doing everything on my own. Um, there, there's definitely a skill and a process in doing that and, and being able to ask, ask for help, but also to take the time and invest in your help to, to, to speak to them and to, and, and to, and to, and, and to discuss with them and, and, and to educate them on how you want things to be done, but also to hear from them what they think. You know, there's a lot of different ways to bake this cake, you know what I mean? And, and, and my way isn't necessarily the right way. It's definitely not the right way. It might not necessarily be the best way. So being able to empower those that work, not for you, but with you, to add to your business and take things off your plate, not just to take things off your plate so you don't have to do as much work, but to, to, but to open up space so you can do the next thing. So I can take another course. I can take on more responsibility. I can bury myself in something else so that I'm continuing to grow along with, along with my business is super important. Yeah, no doubt. And I would say that's, that's been a huge kind of uh, evolution for me. Like I started my business with just me. I was the only employee kind of doing everything from soup to nuts taken me, you know, I think I had my first employee, uh, maybe like three years in. So since then, we now have a team of five people now and, and really just putting the right people in the right seats and then letting those people develop and grow professionally has been kind of a really, uh, important thing for me to provide. I, I really want to provide, um, a setting where people can feel like they have professional growth available. Um, and then honestly, I have an awesome team that I've learned a ton from, um, just in terms of like figuring out what people are suited to do. Like I, I've noticed a lot of my shortcomings um, with just like certain things that I'm like, you know what, I'm not very good at that. 
Um, but I am good at this. So I, I hope to scale my business, not so I can exit my business, but so I can start to work in the, the realms of my business that I, that I want to work in. And then we can kind of build the team out, um, around, uh, you know, people that are, so everybody's not going to do everything. Um, so I think if you can kind of put the right asses in the right seats and that everybody can grow professionally and you can ultimately spend more time doing what you want to do. I think that's the ultimate goal. I love that you brought up the point of how much you've learned from your staff. Oh, um, also how much I've, I've learned from my clients. It's, it's so important as a leader or as the owner to be, to, to, to admit and understand when you don't know things and, and to reach out for help. And I think that lends itself um I, I think i think it's very well received from your staff and from your help and from your clients and from the people you deal with when you're okay saying i don't know what do you think um because a rising tide raises all ships so so being able to extend a hand and and, and give people the opportunity to offer their insights and their processes and to learn from it is super important um i, I learned that um at one of my previous jobs one of the managers was very stingy with what she knew um she took care of the the systems, the the financial management software we used, and she knew how to use the system. And people would ask, hey, how do you do this? How do I do that? Can I take care of this? I'll do this. And she was very stingy. She, she didn't want to, to teach. She didn't want other people to be able to know what she knew which was very interesting to me, and I, it was very it was very counterproductive because if she was comfortable with educating others on how to do what she knew, she could take some off her plate, and then she could grow, she could learn, she could adapt. So, just realizing that that you know, people work with you, not for you. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's essential to, to long term growth. Yeah, I would also say back to the original question. It's like. Don't start a business to to grow it and then step away from it. I feel like those businesses are destined to to just not be what they were set out to be. So yeah, build a team, inspire people. I, you know, honestly, I learn from my staff every day. Um, shout out to my staff for for being awesome. Um, it's it's really been a humbling experience as I've started to grow. You start to really, I've looked inward a lot and just noticed lots of my shortcomings and wow, like I butchered X, Y, and Z for so long. We have much better systems now. Um, so yeah, that's been honestly some of my favorite, my favorite parts of growing the business is, is putting people in positions to, to make it better. Um, and I, I learn that every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Always being a student. Um, and it's funny because when you think about being a business owner, you know, you feel like that, 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 that should be like the all knowing role, but, um, it's not, it's not really what it does, you know, be, being, being a leader and being the owner lends itself the opportunity to, to learn from everybody because you're overseeing everything you're involved in everything. And if you maintain kind of the student, the, the student approach, it, it's going to benefit you. It's going to benefit your business. It's going to benefit everyone that you're fortunate enough to work with. Uh, last question before we kind of close this thing out. Um, what's the proper way to incorporate supplements into your diet? And what are your favorites for men's health? Um, before Nick and I tackle this question, I want to kind of um, plug one of my next guests, a lot of you guys know Ryan Horton. He's a trainer at the gym here. Um, and he's kind of my go-to guy when it comes to uh, training supplementation, um, the do's and don'ts, how to, how to stay healthy, how to, how, to, how to stay safe. And we're going to be covering this uh, in, in depth in one of the following podcasts. But I'm very interested to see uh, Nick's take on supplementation. I, I use all the supplements, um, or at least the ones that, 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 that are necessary. 
Um, so so w- w- how do you feel is the proper way to incorporate supplements into your diet and any favorites for men's health specifically? Yeah, I'll start off by saying I'm not a nutrition expert. I've dabbled and, and kind of looked into a bunch of stuff. I would say there are people far more knowledgeable uh, about this. But yeah, honestly, I think supplements should be supplements um, and not basically... Replacements. Uh, yeah, not replacements for just a, you know, a, a diet for basically you want to fuel your body for your goals. And I think that, um, you know, you should look into that first and make sure you're hitting the big rocks as far as like, you know, what fueling looks like for for your goals. And I really think that and I'm not perfect with any of this shit, but it's like it, it really matters, you know, fuel for performance, especially if you're looking to to, to, to compete at a high level or to just make progressive progress with yourself. Make sure you don't have any big holes in your diet. And also um, to form habits and rituals. Exactly. With a baseline that will that will allow you to do this yeah. forever. So I really like that was your first approach. The, the, the primary answer to uh, the best supplements is first to talk about not supplements. Not supplements. The, the, like, first yeah, thing exactly. is, the first thing is the food. Are you eating food that digests well, that agrees with your body, that's micronutrient-dense, um, avoiding things that are processed, and trying to cover all your bases or at least as much as you can from real food before you before you go to the supplement counter for sure um i take fish oils um i take henry's fish oils every day i take magnesium every day um and honestly these are things that i've kind of just like seen and read about that uh you know are managed i I try not to go crazy but um yeah for me it's fish oils i supplement with uh, fish oil um, magnesium creatine monohydrate um, I think is a pretty easy one to get down. And really, that's it for me. I honestly don't go crazy. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm opposed to supplementation by any means. But um, I also, you know, especially like with the supplements that I'm taking, I haven't noticed any, you know, and I'm taking kind of like the first layer of supplements. But like, I don't think they've really edged me in the right direction one way or the other. I think there's other big rocks to um kind of hit before i really get super excited about supplementation yeah no i agree with you and you definitely hit um some of the foundational ones that i recommend to my clients as well i think anybody especially individuals who are training hard and putting their body through the ring i think fish oil is super important um it's not impossible to get from the diet you know eating eating salmon um you know just four ounces once once or twice a week is going to give you a good amount of omega-3s in the system but a diet that's rich in omega-3s is going to be super advantageous for anybody but especially those that are putting their body through stress you know a diet that's rich in omega-3 fatty acids is going to increase cell permeability which is huge it's going to help with inflammation recovery or organ health joint health and just swallow a couple fish oil every morning and night you can't beat it um, our, our friend Henry has his own his own uh, his own line called Civic Nutrition, which is a great product. I also um, use fish oil from Poliquin, and there's one other uh, line that I like. It starts with a B. I can't quite remember, but yeah, get your fish oil in. Um, I do probably between 1.5 and 2 grams a day, which is which is a pretty heavy dose, but a gram is enough uh, for most people. Fish oil should be in there. Magnesium as well. Um, Nick mentioned is 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 going to be super important, mainly because it's really hard to get enough from nutrition from from regular food. You know, if, as a male, you know, between three, four hundred to five and six hundred milligrams a day, I say would be would be a good place to be at, and that's a lot of spinach, my yeah, man. That's sure. a lot. So, supplement with magnesium is relatively inexpensive. Um, kind of something to think about too is maybe dose it you know the majority of the supplements that i use are are dosed morning and night divided evenly but i tend to take more magnesium at night so let's say if i do 
um, two, two in the morning, I'll do four at night because magnesium can be associated with relaxation, can help with recovery and falling into deeper sleep. So while, you know, it's not going to put you to sleep like a melatonin or something like that, but I, w- I would recommend more magnesium at night than in the morning, but still spread it out. Um, one thing, uh, Nick mentioned creatine monohydrate, easily one of the most uh, widely studied and widely accepted supplements as that it works, that it's beneficial for many things. Um, the idea that it, that it holds water is true, but it's misunderstood. It holds water in the muscle cell, not in the fat cell. Right. All right. So creatine is fantastic. Creatine is, 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 is the first um, thing that the body leverages when it comes to um, caloric expenditure, when it comes to work. So it's the first system the body leverages when training is the creatine phosphate system. So it's already in the cell. Um, so more creatine is, is understood to, to, to give you kind of, kind of more power, more pop in the first 90 seconds, 69 seconds of exercise. So when to take it, um, just as long as you get it, I think is good. I lean more towards intra or post training because again, it's already in the cell and my thought process is while I'm exercising, I'm using creatine. So my, my goal is to essentially resaturate the cell. Um, but you'll, you'll see a lot of, a lot of pre-workouts with the creatine monohydrate or ethylester or whatever, um, in it as well. I'm not going to say that that's counterproductive, but it makes more sense to me to do five or 10 grams post exercise or intra training than before. But as long as you're getting in, I think you're in good shape. Um, Something that I would add to what Nick said would be uh, vitamin D. I think vitamin D is um, overlooked quite a bit, and it's super, super beneficial. My friend Stan Efferding has a phenomenal um, short YouTube video, one of his Rhino Rants on vitamin D. Um, look up Rhino Rant Vitamin D on YouTube to learn all about vitamin D and, and, and how many things it impacts. That is the one supplement that I only take in the morning. I'll usually do 5,000 IUs at least um, during the year, and I'll usually double it to 10,000 in the winter because I'm getting less sun exposure. Right. So that's um, the, 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 that, that'll cover a lot of bases alone. You know, fish oil, magnesium, and vitamin D are ones that I recommend to every single person I meet with, regardless of what they're doing. I think that's, um, that, that's pretty straightforward. Zinc's a good idea as well. Getting some zinc in there, great for cognitive ability, also good for, for sleep. Zinc is um, in, in a supplement called ZMA, which is a popular one to take before bed, cognitive function. And also, um, if you improve sleep, you improve everything. So zinc can help with that. As far as other supplements, um, you know, it, it's funny. When, when you read up on what they all do, you know, what vitamin K does and what, and what this mineral does and what that does, when you read about their properties, it's like, holy shit, you become very overwhelmed. It's like, how can I survive or even have a prayer to perform optimally if I'm not covering all these bases? Really, at the end of the day, if, if, you, if you're eating well and you're feeding yourself well, your body's going to figure it out. Your body's going to get it what it needs. Yeah, for sure. Um, and everything else is just icing on the cake. But it, like we said before, it's super important just to cover all the bases you can with your baseline nutrition strategies and your training, and supplements can help. In the onset, fish oil, magnesium, creatine, and vitamin D, I'd say are pretty solid. Um, I think those should be in everyone's supplement routine. And then everything else is, is just extra and, sure. and, and, and can kind of be tailored more to the individual. But as far as baseline supplementation, I think, um, I th- I think that that's a, that's a good start for most people. Yeah, I agree. All right, so in closing, Nick, um, where, 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 where can people find you? Um, I, I tag you all the time at Strength IQ. You have a website you said that you're putting together? Yeah, we have a website we're putting together for Strength IQ. Um, that's going to be launched hopefully in the next few weeks. Um, it's, been a, it's been a long time coming for Strength IQ. Um, but, yeah, the best place to get in contact with me is on my Instagram, strength underscore IQ. Um, look out for our website coming out. We got some programs um, that are going to be available for purchase. We're really um, focused on basically – 
giving you the how and the why behind kind of doing what you're doing. So really fostering that, like you're learning and then you're learning how to apply these things to lots of times uh, the stuff you're already doing. So um, look out for that in the next few weeks. Uh, we'll have a um, ton of content coming out um, and some programs for purchase up there as well. Excellent. Yeah. And then um, if you're interested in physical therapy and you're local, um, my physical therapy uh, clinic is called Academy Physical Therapy. You can reach us online at academyptri.com. You can uh, contact us at, us there directly um, if you want to uh, hear from us more. And that's right off Smith Street in, in Providence, right across from LaSalle. Right across from LaSalle. We're at the corner of Eaton and Academy Ave. Yeah, and I, I can tell you, um, it, it, it's it's a very special place because not only do you have Nick at your disposal, Nick Nick and all of his staff at your disposal, but um, Dennis Laney is a chiropractor um, that that practices downstairs, and he's also just a great resource, you know. And and that's really what it comes down to in, in this practice is, is is it takes an army, you know. And the more resources you can make available to yourself, um, the, the further you can take it. And I'm very grateful to have become um, familiar with with both Nick and and Dr. Laney because they've helped me a great deal personally with my rehabilitation, keeping me healthy, keeping me able to come back from injuries and continue to train, but also a tremendous resource for my staff, my clients and my members. So I'm very grateful to, um, you know, have them at my disposal and they're here for you guys too. So strength IQ at strength underscore IQ on Instagram. His website will be launched in a couple weeks and you can find him at Academy Physical Therapy on Smith Street in Providence. Anything else you want to add, Nick, before we shut it down? No, man, much appreciated you having me on here. This is my first kind of like long form conversation um, kind of in the field. So I'm excited to kind of get out and being to do this type of stuff more. So much appreciate you giving me the platform to, uh, to talk about this stuff, man. Yeah, and you know what? I, I think this is going to be the first one of many. Um, I'm really looking forward to all your feedback on this, guys. Again, Again, like I say in the beginning with the intro, it's, 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 my, it's my goal and it's very important to me to offer as much value through this platform as possible. And, and, and Nick is just that. So uh, please like, comment, share, and, and, and shoot, shoot us a DM of, of some topics that we covered that you liked, anything you'd like to, to touch on more. Nick's not far away, so th this will be the first, um, the first podcast with the two of us of many. So any questions you guys would like to cover or topics that we cover that you want to learn more about, please just let us know. Give us some direction, and, and, and we'll take care of it for you guys. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next week. All right, so that just about wraps up today's episode. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning in to the Top Strength Cast. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed putting it together. Uh, if you did, in fact, enjoy it, please leave a five-star review, like, share, whatever it may be to help get the word out. We really appreciate the support. And also, your, your feedback. Your feedback means a lot to me. Feel free to reach out, uh, shoot me a DM directly at StripCam or comment below. You know, like I said in the intro, it's most important to me to offer as much value through this platform as possible. And it's, it's very helpful in doing that to, to get your guys' feedback. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear. Um, you know, I really want to provide the, the best service possible. So thanks again so much for listening. We'll see you guys over there, and we'll see you next week for the next episode. Thanks again.